Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. During a press conference on August 12, 1986, United States President Ronald Reagan made an observation that now seems to come from an enviably more innocent age. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That was when the worst the government could do was impose conflicting or haphazard policies that inadvertently caused you some degree of hardship. But not anymore. As we now know, even in Australia, the government has evolved from a bumbling bureaucracy to a deliberately destructive force, actively tearing down the institutions and principles upon which our freedom and prosperity are based, so it can replace it with, well, it hasn't told us that bit yet. If Reagan were President of the United States or Prime Minister of Australia today, he would need to rewrite his famous catchphrase too, I'm from the government and I'm here to deliberately make things worse. Here's another scene from an enviably more innocent age. This is from the cheesy 1966 Australian comedy, They're a Weird Mob, in which the protagonist, recent Italian migrant Nino Colotta, through hard work and assimilation, fulfills the great Australian dream. He's bought a bloody block of land. Oh, he's bought a bloody block of land, all right. Right on the greatest harbour in the world where he plans to build the house himself, get married and raise a family. The filmmakers took a bit of license by giving Nino's block of land a panoramic view of Sydney Harbour, but that simply reflects how ambitious people were back then. Australia was such a land of opportunity, even a recently arrived Italian with minimal English could aim high as long as he made an effort to assimilate. But that's a dirty word these days. We don't want new migrants to assimilate anymore. Instead, we have entire government bureaucracies dedicated to helping them do exactly the opposite because, as we're repeatedly told, diversity, not unity, is our strength. 
But that's going to be my main topic next week and you'll want to tune in for that. The other reason the fictional Nino Colotta was Nino Colotta was plausibly able to acquire a home so easily was that the government didn't get in the way back then. He bought the land and started building. What he built, within reason, was none of the government's business. Now, all the government does is obstruct, as if that is its purpose. Did you know, for example, that there is a push to give all new standalone houses disabled access in Australia? That means ramps instead of steps and hallways wide enough for a wheelchair, whether the residents are disabled or not. There are also onerous new energy efficiency standards being introduced. These new conditions, which will add about $100,000 to the cost of a standard house, will be enforceable in Queensland from October 1 and most other states will follow next year. This at a time when housing is, according to Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, a crisis. Anyone who thinks Palaszczuk cares about housing is simply not paying attention. Here's a map of the Cumberland Plains in Sydney, significant chunks of which were cleared around the time that there a weird mob was showing in the cinemas and are now established suburbs. But it's not that simple anymore. The western side of that lighter area has been subject, has been the subject of preempted that darker area, I should say, the western side of that darker area has been the subject of preemptive conservation studies for decades, which have discouraged developers. Well, it looked like the developers would finally get the green light last year when the previous state government approved 73,000 homes spread across 200,000 hectares of previously unused bush. But the new state environment minister, Labor's Penny Sharp, said in June that the environment plan for one major portion of the development by the Walker Group at a town called Appen, quote, did not strike the right balance. She did not rule out delaying the development further in order to, quote, ensure that we protect koalas and the rest of the stated conservation outcomes of the plan, unquote. Well, she's not alone there. Here's independent state MP Judy Hannan explaining her priorities for the region. New South Wales, yet the government is hell-bent on allowing developers to destroy their habitat. But despite being free of the disease, they're not free from politicians making bad decisions. The New South Wales government is allowing the destruction of their habitat to make way for high-density development. They think koalas can just relocate. What, just pack up their caravans and go? They're koalas, not grey nomads, although they are grey. When these little cuties are gone, they're gone forever to protect koalas at the state election. Vote one for Judy Hannan, your independent for Wallandilly. I'm totally koalified for the job. The koalas aren't free from politicians making bad decisions and neither are you and I.
This is the strangest political development since those relatively carefree days of Nino Colotta and Ronald Reagan. Politicians and other assorted bureaucratic busybodies now often care more about animals than they do about people. Here's another example from a seemingly unrelated policy area. This is a group photo of a crossbench alliance who are opposed to shark nets being installed at popular beaches in Sydney, Newcastle and Wollongong this summer. I reached out to a bunch of these people to discuss this topic, including Emma Hurst of the Animal Justice Party, seen here in the pink jacket taking, taking centre stage. I also contacted the Department of Primary Industries requesting an interview with Chief Shark Researcher Vic Pettimores. I've been writing about this topic for seven years now and over that time have probably requested an interview with Pettimores half a dozen times without success. I also contacted Sean Doherty, the National Chairman of the Surfrider Foundation and one of the finest Australian surf journalists of the past couple of decades. After initially agreeing to come on the show, he failed to reply to subsequent messages. Doherty's reticence is particularly pertinent now because only last week there was yet another attack on a surfer. Tony Begg, a 44-year-old father of two kids, was almost killed by a four-metre great white while surfing at Port Macquarie last week and will suffer life-changing injuries. I've been arguing for policies that will end this carnage for years, but political and general community consensus seems to be going the other way. Attacks on surfers and swimmers have become commonplace as protection of sharks has increased and measures to effectively protect humans have decreased. You would think that, of all people, Doherty, who represents surfers, would be particularly keen to discuss this topic now, but not even he will come on the show. The latest political development is that the nets that have been going in to the water every summer in Sydney since the 1930s should not be deployed this year. The reason? They kill too many marine animals, including sharks. <sighs> the proposed alternatives from people like Petamores and other researchers, who by the way have made careers out of this, include tagging sharks and flying drones above popular beaches to see if there's any sharks in the water. Researchers from the Department of Primary Industries regularly catch, tag and release sharks from Port Macquarie, which also has a listening device that will supposedly warn people of the presence of sharks. Well, it didn't work last week when someone was seriously attacked. Similarly, a fatal attack at nearby Foster two years ago occurred within a kilometre of a listening device and even closer to a drumline where the sharks were being caught. The track record of this expensive new tagging program is already worse 
than the track record of the nets. Nets have been in place in popular New South Wales beaches for almost a century. And in that time, there has been only one fatal attack at a protected beach. In Queensland, the nets have been in place since 1962, and there have been only two fatalities at protected beaches since then. There is a good reason why politicians who want to pull these nets out this summer and Sean Doherty of the Surfrider Foundation won't come on this show to discuss this topic. They know their policies will cost human lives and deep down their conscience naggingly tells them that that is indefensible. They're welcome on this show anytime they like to discuss it. Thankfully, New, New South Wales Premier Chris Minns is holding out against these anti-human shark huggers, and I hope he can continue to stand his ground. Well, let's turn to another example of an Australian government making life incalculably worse for its constituents. Three years ago, when Victorian Premier Dan Andrews lifted the moratorium on onshore gas exploration, but continued to ban fracking, he said he was doing so because he wanted to, quote, protect farming communities and our huge food and fibre sector, unquote. Well, fracking had, be, had even then been proved to be an environmentally safe and cheap way to produce gas. But Andrews was, as always, milking the lazy green vote that thought otherwise. Now he's doing it again, but this time it's the, quote, farming communities who are paying the price. Daniel Wilde is the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs in Victoria and has just returned from a trip around Ballarat, northwest of Melbourne, where farmers are livid about proposals to suspend high-tension wires across their farmland, among other things. The IPA has been leading the charge in defence of rural communities against all this madness to rewire the East Coast for so-called renewable energy. And I'm pleased to say Dan Wilde joins me now to talk about it. Dan, welcome. Good to be with you, Fred. Dan, firstly, you have visited many parts of the eastern seaboard lately to find out how people feel about Energy Minister Chris Bowen's plans to rewire the nation. Tell me, Dan, is the attitude towards this policy the same wherever you go? Yeah, it is, Fred. The common thread through these regional communities is that they're uh, feeling left out, left behind and not being consulted on these issues. They're being taken for granted. You know, farmers are the ones that put food on our table. They export it around the world. They're earning that critical export revenue that is then reinvested to the benefit of all communities. But they're just getting steamrolled by the inner city elites and the politicians that take them for granted. And as you say, these energy proposals, the renewable energy proposals, are basically to blanket huge parts of rural and regional Australia in wind turbines and solar panels and uh, transmission lines that go through prime agricultural land. It's got massive ramifications for these communities, but also for the nation as a whole. It's a, it's a threat to our food security. Uh, it's a threat to our energy security. 
uh, and yet our political leaders are just pushing on with this plan, even though uh, it's got no prospect of working in an effective way and is severely undermining the prosperity of these regional towns. Oh, Dan, the way you sum it up, I mean, it, I, I want to laugh, but it's just tragic, for, not only for the nation, but especially for these, uh, these poor communities. Now, let's talk about where you've been this time, which is up around Ballarat. Uh, we saw some of the footage earlier from that trip, and I've got to say, those people don't look like, you know, protesters, let alone insurrectionists or troublemakers. They mostly look like ordinary farmers who've never had much need to concern themselves with politics. And they look like they've been in the area for generations. They know the land well and care for it. And it's also extremely productive looking land. Am I wrong, Dan? I uh, know you're 100% right, Fred. These are salt of the earth people, real Australians who care deeply about their communities. Many of them have been on their farms for generations, so they want to see their kids continuing on. And what was so, I mean, we, we met with probably uh, 50 or 60 farmers throughout our trip through the northwest of the state. So we're about 150 k's northwest of Ballarat in a place called Sonatan, and then in some towns around there with the, the locals. And look, basically they're saying that uh, their kids aren't going to have a future on the land because they don't know whether they're going to be able to operate anymore. Uh, they've got just these uh, government and energy bureaucrats that are able to trespass without any, any permission on their land as they're looking at where they're going to put up these poles and wires and uh, yeah, well, let's just can, can we just be specific about what's going on here? So this is mostly about transmission wires, is that right? Yeah, look, the immediate issue is the transmission uh, wires that are going to go through land. So basically what's proposed is in order to set up this whole new renewable infrastructure, there needs to be a whole new energy transmission system. So you can't just plug into the existing transmission system that's there. They're going to completely set up a new system across our country, uh, which means you have to have a whole new series of transmission lines and towers that's going to go through these farming communities on private land. So what they're effect, basically just saying, well... well what, but, but, Dan, what effect will these towers have on their ability to farm? Well, it's going to undermine their ability to farm because they need to use, as you know, broadacre machinery that's got to be able to operate effectively. When you've got these massive, you know, transmission lines and towers going through there, it's a huge issue for their ability to operate. It's also a big safety issue. Um, we talked to a, a local CFA, Country Fire Association official, and the information he provided made it very clear that people's lives will be put at risk from this because they can't effectively fight bushfires when they've got these massive towers that are around on this land. So uh, there's, there's a big risk there. The, the other point that I'd make is uh, many of them are just going to simply sell up and leave. So there's a food security issue. You can't keep farming on the land uh, when you've got these transmission lines going right through it. Uh, so we're going to have to import our food and this will have ramifications right across our society. Well, some of the footage you showed earlier um, was of particularly stunning and beautiful Victorian uh, farming land. Now, one of the effects, I've got to say, would be about the quality of life uh, from just purely from an aesthetic point of view. I mean, if you're working those fields, you'd be going, you know, wow, my grandfather worked these fields and look how beautiful it is and it's still producing all this food. But you throw in some of those massive towers and high tension wires and I imagine it, it alters the sort of, you know, the look and feel of the community altogether. Yeah, it does, Fred. There's a couple of things there. Firstly, 
uh, we talked to a couple of local tourism operators and they said it's going to be a big issue for them uh, because, of course, you're around, you're around the Grampians. You're not far away. So if you're hiking through the Grampians, you're going to be able to see these transmission lines. So there's going to be a huge negative impact on the tourism industry, not to mention you know, the livability, as you say, of the local community. The other point to remember here is uh, at the moment we're just talking about the transmission lines, but of course this, the supposed energy they're going to get to put into the transmission lines is from wind and solar. So you're going to have this countryside blanketed with uh, solar panels and wind turbines. According to official figures from the Victorian government, something like 70% of prime agricultural land across Victoria would need to be taken up by wind turbines and solar panels and transmission lines to achieve their net zero targets. Think, think about what that means. 70% of agricultural land, that's an enormous number. There's no indication of, well, what does this mean for our ability to produce food? Uh, what's it going to mean for these communities? Um, these policies are deeply unpopular and the communities affected by them are deeply resentful of the way that they're being dismissed and treated by the inner city bureaucrats and, and the politicians who are just trying to steamroll them. So at the moment, the proposal that they're fighting really is the high tension wires and the towers, but your calculations suggest that pretty soon they will be, those that, that rewiring will be connected to solar farms and windmills in these farming areas. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's right. And you can just go for a drive around some of these areas and you'll see the wind turbines going up already. And it's not just in Victoria, you'll see it around New South Wales and Queensland. There's either already massive solar farms in, in place or there's plans to create even bigger ones. So you know, this is a big issue around regional communities. And look, the fundamental point I want to make here, Fred, is the problem is net zero, right? That's what's causing all of these problems. The only reason we need to have all of these new transmission lines, all of these solar panels and wind farms is because of this commitment to net zero. It's crumbling around the world. You know, countries around Europe are running away and have been running away from net zero as fast as they can. It's basically dead in the UK where they're exploring new sources of energy over there. Uh, it's already crumbling in Australia as there's questions raised as to even the, the physical, even if you take for granted the, the goal, even if you think net zero is a good idea, there's no physical way we can even get to that figure in our energy sector. And what this means basically is we should just go back to uh, the existing transmission lines, the existing network we have. We should be building uh, high efficiency, low emission coal-fired coal power stations and nuclear power stations that can plug into the existing grid. We avoid all of these problems. And as we know, Fred, and you've talked about this so often, uh, there's no discernible environmental benefit from renewable energy. In fact, there's a big negative environmental cost. Uh, much of it is not recyclable. Much of it comes over from China and other nations. So this is a big negative no matter which way you look at it. And, uh, you know, we just need our political leaders to pay attention to this. Well, one of my colleagues, Nick Cater, has done a sterling job lately exposing uh, the environmental damage caused by these huge windmills, not least of which is uh, a little windmill blade graveyard that he discovered on the edge of a rainforest up in Queensland. They've been sitting there for over a decade and uh, nobody knows what to do with these things. And they, they were the smaller ones. I mean, the latest ones are 80 metres long and you need to close the Hume Highway just to shift one of them down the road to, you know, uh, rural New South Wales. But, um, but Dan, you, have you done any research into the political uh, backdrop of this 
for Labor. I mean, Chris Bowen, every day on social media, is doubling down on his commitment to renewables and with his, in his inimitable smirking way, uh, downplaying the, uh, the, the possibility that nuclear could solve the problem cheaper and more efficiently. What's the political background? Do you think this is going to uh, be a major consideration at the next federal election, for example? Yeah, there's no doubt it will be. Uh, as every day goes by, energy prices are going up, the failings of the system are clear. Um, I think the coalition's done a good job in staking out ground on the nuclear front. But the reality is that if we do get nuclear one day, it's not going to be tomorrow. Uh, it's going to take some time. Uh, we're going to need something in between. And I, I think, to be honest with you, Fred, we're going to end up with more coal at the end of all of this. And that, that's why I'm talking about the the high efficiency, low emissions coal-fired power stations that we're going to have to build as a nation, otherwise we're going to have blackouts. It's as simple as that. There's no way you're going to have this renewables infrastructure in place. It's costly. It's got to be recycled every 10 years. Um, so, look, I think Chris Bowen is probably the lowest performing minister we've seen from a policy perspective in living memory on this. He's sending our nation down a very dangerous path. Uh, we've talked about a lot of the issues. There's also a national security issue, which is we import uh, something like 90% of wind turbines and solar panels, a lot of it from China. So what if they don't want to supply it to us anymore? Uh, so that's that's a big risk. So look, we need to go down the nuclear pathway. There's no doubt about that. But we're also going to need more coal-fired power stations if we want to maintain the lifestyle that we have as a nation. And uh, I think you've correctly identified that this is going to be a big issue uh, over the next couple of years. Just getting back to the communities you've you've visited, did you find that those communities were in some time were in some instances uh, divided? Because there are some rural communities where some farmers have taken the money and had windmills installed on their farms, for example, and can just sit back and uh, you know uh, earn what they once earned from raising sheep and wheat by with just you know subsidised windmills. Is there division in these rural areas, or are they uh, are they unified against this rubbish? Well, 90% are against it. Um, there are some that make money out of it, as you say, through these subsidised foreign-owned uh, windmills and solar panels, but 90% of the communities are, are completely against this, uh, what's happening. It has divided uh, a lot of people, which is a, a real shame. Um, in terms of the transmission lines, we didn't meet anyone that's in favour of that particular side of it. There's proposals, for example, that to build them underground if you need new lines rather than above ground, which is fair enough as far as it goes. But like I say, the fundamental issue here is net zero and the entire edifice that surrounds that. So unless we you know, make the case of net zero being the problem, then these communities are going to continue to be put upon by the inner city elites in their pursuit of this. I mean, don't forget, if you're living in Turak or, uh, you know, Mosman or a suburb like that, you don't have to look at these things. Uh, you're not directly affected by it. You get to feel good from it. It's, it's being pushed out of sight, out of mind. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these communities have had enough and they're fighting back. Yeah, well done, Dan. And well done on the IPA for visiting uh, those rural communities, doing what, as my colleague Alan Jones says, giving a voice to the voiceless. Keep up the good work, Dan, and thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. Always good to chat. That's Dan Weil, the, executive, uh, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. And here's yet another example of powerful forces lined up against the national interest. The Australian government has been looking for a nuclear waste site for 50 years now, 
And until now, this was a bipartisan policy. Decades of nuclear waste has been accumulating in the basements of 130 sites around the nation. There cannot be a single Australian who has not had a loved one's life extended by this radioactive material, which is used in radiotherapy for cancer patients. We have all relied on this material and technology for years, but now the time has come for it to be disposed of more efficiently. After a decade of whittling down a long list of sites, a parliamentary inquiry settled on the town of Kimba, near the Gawler Ranges in South Australia. As you've probably heard already, the plan will not go ahead thanks to some unrepresentative locals and the federal court. My next guest is James Mathias, who works for the Menzies Research Centre and also recently began posting short political commentary videos for us here on ADH on our social media accounts. James has some insight into how this nuclear dump was cancelled and he joins me now. James, welcome. Thanks, Fred. Good to be with you. James, the Australian Electoral Commission held a plebiscite in Kimba asking locals if they were in favour of the nuclear dump. Now, before we get to the result of that plebiscite, let's talk about the Bangala Aboriginal Determination Corporation, which opposed the plebiscite. Now, James, on what grounds did it have any, if at all, to oppose this proposal? Or the plebiscite, I should say. Oh. Indeed. Well, Fred, uh, when the former minister, Keith Pitt, announced that he had asked the AEC to go into this town of Kimber to conduct the poll, uh, the AEC went in there and worked with the local council and determined who could in fact vote uh, in this non-binding plebiscite. And the local council came back with this wise piece of advice and said, well, um, if we want to have local opinions, why don't we do it where locals can vote? That is, those who are ratepayers within the local council area. Now, this Bangala uh, Aboriginal Determination Corporation um, said that that was actually excluding them on the basis of their Aboriginal, uh, their Aboriginality. So, in actual fact, the reason why no members of the Bangala Aboriginal Determination Corporation could vote was um, because they said their Aboriginality, but... Fred, they tried to put an injunction on this vote happening. It went to court and the court found that it wasn't in fact them being excluded based on their Aboriginality, which would have been in contravention of the Racial Discrimination Act, rather that none of the members of the corporation lived in the area. <laughs> so I may as well have posted an objection myself and I live in Sydney. Is that what you're saying, James? Well, that's right. And they also extended the fact to state of the court that they had native title claims over the area. Now, native title claims do exist for 10% of Kimber, but in actual fact, the site that the Commonwealth chose, which was private land, had no native title claims over it. So essentially, the Bangala Aboriginal Determination Corporation had absolutely nothing to do with this proposal and then tried to stop it, stop a plebiscite, uh, or stop the locals uh, participating in a plebiscite to decide whether they wanted it. I mean, this, this Aboriginal Determination Corporation sounds like they have some sort of, uh, you know, power complex 
and uh, don't want other people to decide what they do in the town. Well, that's right, Fred. And I think the historical context of this is very important. Like you said in your introduction, Australian governments have been searching together, Liberal and Labor, for 50 years. Now we're in a situation where more than 17,500 cubic metres of nuclear waste, low-level and intermediate nuclear waste, is sitting in the basements of 130 institutions across Australia, um, universities or hospitals. And so when the previous minister decided on a site that was private land put up by the private landholder and then sent the AEC in to um, essentially determine whether the community was happy with it. And the minister said that this site would not go ahead unless the community was in favour of it. Now, the results were that 61% of people in the local community came back and said, yes, we want this. 61% of businesses in the community came back and said, yes, we want this. 100% of those um, uh, owners of land around the immediate site said yes. So how can it be in this country when the community says overwhelmingly yes, it can be stopped up by an Aboriginal corporation who actually don't have any people that live in the area? Yeah, well, we'll, look, we'll come back to that in a minute, just about how, you know, who, who is really calling the shots here. But tell me, why did the locals approve? Was, the, was there a sweetener from the federal government? Yeah, the federal government essentially said we'll provide a $31 million economic package to the, to the town of Kimber, you know, fixing roads, um, upgrading, uh, whatever it is within the community. And the locals were overwhelmingly in support of this. And I think, Fred, that the residents of Kimber would be very upset with the fact that all these jobs that were going to be created, all this um, economic growth within the area that is actually facing a major problem with people leaving, now this is all up in the air because some outsiders came in and tried so very hard to stop it. Well, I mean, you, you did explain quite quite well what the relationship the Bangala Aboriginal Determination Corporation has to this area, but can you tell me what they think they have? I mean, what, what, what claim do they think they have over the region? Are they, do, do they have traditional links to the area? Have they been there for a long time? Or what, what is it? Well, yes, they do have traditional links to the area, but like I said before, their native title claim is massive. It it essentially runs up the coast of of South Australia, Um, but their native title only encroaches in on 10% of of the Kimber community. And like I said, on this private land, a private landholder has said, I will give the Commonwealth my land to do this much needed project. Um, They have somehow uh, some kind of claim over that. And then you know, we're talking about now the fact that this project has been stopped in its tracks because this same corporation then took the decision to court again. Well, to the let, yeah, court. let me just, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so that was last year the Bangala Aboriginal Determination Corporation sued in the federal court. Now, firstly, James, before we go on to the actual case, I mean, that suing in the federal court is, is a very expensive exercise. Where do they get their money from? Well, Fred, um, I've been doing some deep searching into the financial statements of this um, corporation. And what I found is that every single year, uh, for the last two years rather, this corporation spends hundreds of thousands of dollars on court fees. Last financial year, Fred, they spent $800,000 on, on legal fees. That is, that they are constantly taking companies or landholders 
to court to make these claims. But where, but where do they get their money from? Yeah, well, look, um, they have various business interests. One of the major income streams for this corporation is the fact that um, major en energy providers um, work off their land and so they get royalties for that. Um, they've also been in negotiations on their land to have one of the largest solar farms uh, in Australia and that will create generate an additional $1.5 million for them, for them per year. Uh, two financial years ago on their operations, they made above $2 million profit and this last financial year, they made another $2.5 million profit. So when you say they make a profit, it's not from the, 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 the actual members of this corporation, whoever's on the board or, or executives or staff, it sounds like they don't actually do anything. They just, you know, lease the land that was given to them under native title. Is that correct? Well, yeah, and look, they're involved in negotiations to um, bring these corporations in and, and work on the land or, you know, this native title claim is only a few years old to work with existing um, companies within the area and work with them to determine uh, a, a fair and reasonable amount of money that they get paid for using their land. Now, I say fair and reasonable um, would be in their terms. I'm, <laughs> I still find it all a little sort of perplexing, to be honest. I mean... These are people who have traditional uh, connections to the land. They've been given sections of it under native title. They are constantly in court and they're awash with cash. I mean, none of it makes, none of it seems to be particularly productive or for the good of the nation. I mean, what, what's in it for ordinary Australians? Well, we talk about the good of the nation, Fred. What could be more common sense than finally, after 50 years, a government determining a site the community wanted, and then we can start storing in a proper facility the 17,500 um, cubic metres of nuclear waste we have in this country, and then for a corporation like this to stop it when they don't even have native title claims. Now, your viewers are getting an insight through this segment on exactly what the voice would look like if it were to pass. Exactly. And also, I, 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 have, I have read that uh, this site or some sort of efficient and properly run nuclear waste dump will be necessary once AUKUS kicks in, the Australia, UK and US Defence Treaty, because that involves nuclear submarines. We, we will need a nuclear waste dump. So here we have, the, you know, a proxy for the voice or a sample of what it might look like actually having a say over Australian defence policy. Am I right, James? Well, that's right. And you have to understand as well that the waste coming out of these submarines is not uh, the waste from nuclear medicine or x-rays or the gloves that have been exposed to it. This is, um, this is proper stuff out of reactors. So we really need to get smart about this. The clock is ticking. And I'll just say this, Fred, that we previously said that this has had bipartisan support, Labor and Liberal. And the Labor government, up until a recent court decision, was actually in favour of this. And now I wonder, during the middle of a voice debate, whether they've just rolled over and allowed this to settle so as to not annoy an Aboriginal corporation. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, the, 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 the tentacles of the voice seem to go everywhere in Australian politics now. Now, the local federal electorate is the seat of Grey, which takes up something like 92% of, of the state of South Australia geographically. So it's a, it's a kind of unique uh, electorate in its, on its own right. 
and it's been held by a Liberal member, Rowan Ramsey, since 2007. In fact, it's been a it's been a, um, a Liberal uh, electorate held by Liberals for uh, a lo as long as uh, most people can remember. Rowan Ramsey has described the federal court decision by Justice Natalie Charlesworth as adventurous and, quote, calls into question the integrity of every freehold title in the land. He went on to say, whether a householder wanting to put up a garage and a, an aged care provider building a new nursing home or a council putting in a new football oval, previously, if it were on freehold title, we would have said the owner had the right to do so. Now, who knows? Well, James, I think you're right. The federal government is not going to appeal this federal court decision because they know it's going to cast aspersions on its own proposed voice to parliament, isn't it? Well, the most recent court decision, there's, there's a series of them. We've been through the earlier ones to try and stop the AEC going in there and taking the vote. This most recent one was um, something taken by this Indigenous corporation to the court to try and knock this over once and for all by saying that they weren't properly consulted. And the judgment was that the minister, then Minister Keith Pitt, acted with apprehended bias. Now, let me break that down um, for your viewers, Fred. Essentially, the court has determined that the minister had within his mindset uh, a want, a drive, and ultimately executed on a plan to put this site um, in this town without proper consultation. Now, look, whether you agree with it or not, if you're a minister under under the Crown, you're acting on legislation that was created in 2012 by the Gillard government, and you're doing everything within that legislation that you deem fit. You are the minister and you make a determination. Well, the court has said, no, the minister acted with too much bias in wanting this to go ahead too quickly. And so fine, the final nail in the coffin was that judgment because seemingly the federal government had the opportunity under the new minister, Madeleine King, to... Um, appeal it, or the minister could just go back under her powers, under the Act, and remake the determination. However, like I said before, because we're in the middle of a voice debate, the minister who has previously said she supported this site going ahead, in a government which has previously said they support this site going ahead, has decided not to appeal the decision, not to remake the decision under the powers vested in her, and to said, um, instead settle settled straight away with this Indigenous corporation paying more than $370,000 back to them in legal fees. How could you call, how could you say a plebiscite is not adequate consultation? I mean, that, that's absurd. The only, the only people here not consulting anyone else, I'd say, is the Aboriginal Determination Corporation who just want to get things their way. And they have... And uh, if you want to talk about uh, lack of consultation, you'd have to say that the federal government's voice to parliament, uh, the way it's run the debate, uh, trying to keep the ideas of treaty and truth as the subsequent uh, parts of, this, of the one policy, all that is lack of consultation too. That James, this is definitely an insight into how Australia is going to be run if this voice to parliament gets up. 
Oh, mate, you and I sit around all the time and we shake our heads. We say, why would you ever start a business in this country? Why would you ever do, you know, all these decisions that government makes and making it so hard and then they have the opportunity to make a bold decision or one that we think is common sense and then it all of a sudden gets knocked over. I mean, where are we heading as a country, mate? It's just unbelievable. Well, that's been the theme of tonight's show, really. I mean, governments seem to be, uh, they seem to think their job is to um, make life worse. James Mathias, thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Fred. Thank you. That's occasional ADH Victorian political commentator for, for ADH and Menzies Research Centre Chief of Staff, James Mathias. And just before I go, Remember when former Prime Minister Julia Gillard became an international sensation for this? I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The Leader of the Opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists are not appropriate for high office. Well, I hope the Leader of the Opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That was 2012, when men were men and women were feminists who could define a woman. I mean, you had to, because you can't accuse someone of misogyny if you can't define a woman, right? Gillard's former adversary, Tony Abbott, will be breathing a sigh of relief today now that she has buried that old hatchet, even if it is inadvertently. What is a woman? And do you agree with Queensland's Attorney General Minister for Women, Sharon Fentiman, that trans women are women, and with the UK's leader of the Labor Party, Sir Keir Starmer, that some women have a penis? Look, I am um, very happy to answer your question, but I, I do worry that, and, and I, I should just say, I um, spend around half of each year in the UK. And in the UK, this has turned into a kind of gotcha parlour game. So if you're listening to the radio, um, you, you literally there'll be some person on there from London City Council who's trying to tell you why the traffic's not going to flow well that day. Um, and the journal will be saying, and can you tell me what a woman is? Well, I think I speak for all sensible people when I say... I will not be lectured about transgenderism by this person. Julia, just answer the question. Forgive me for mansplaining, but a woman is an adult female human. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pellow and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.